0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's 1953. You're walking down Bustleton Avenue in Northeast Philadelphia. You stop in at the local pharmacy to pick up a prescription, and you sit for a while at the counter and talk with the pharmacist. Then you get lunch at the diner next door while kids play outside and run into the corner store to get a soda. Across the street is a barbershop. These places make up your community, and they're all lit up with eye-popping, colorful,
1: custom-made neon signs. I grew up in the Northeast, and a block away from my house was Bustleton Avenue.
0: This is Len Davidson's Philadelphia.
1: There were probably 15 stores. Most of them would have had neon signs. Then if you went another Five blocks up, you would come to Castor Avenue that had even more stores. It looked a lot
0: different from the city we live in now, but Len has preserved a piece of it in a warehouse in Kensington, a building that's home to art studios, a secondhand store for craft materials, a bicycle shop, and the Neon Museum of Philadelphia. I'm Sabrina boyd Circa, and this week, we invite you along to explore the Neon Museum, how it came to be, and why one man has made it his mission to preserve an era of Philadelphia history that's nearly lost today.
1: In Philly, because of all the mom and pop stores, we had many, many more window signs. But nevertheless, some of these signs were big outdoor signs, like I was mentioning the, the Pat Steak sign. This sign had 39 neon tubes on it. And I'm told by people who saw the sign in the 1950s and 60s that if you flew over to Philadelphia and the sign was lit, you could see it from airplanes. Wow! So it's really a notable sign. Len
0: Davidson first became interested in neon in the late 70s when he was living in Florida.
1: I was teaching at University of Florida Mm -hmm. and we had opened up a bar and restaurant there with a roadside America theme and got a lot of old neon to put on the ceiling. And I got more and more interested in neon and less and less interested in academia. And I went to a sign shop that had helped us with the ceiling and had made a front neon sign for us and said I would apprentice with them one day a week if they would teach me about neon. And then when I moved back to Philly, I continued doing more neon and less academia. And then by 1983, I just got out of academia completely and went into neon full time.
0: Len's primary business became making and selling neon signs and art. But he's always been a collector because he's really into the craftsmanship of old
1: neon signs. You know, a lot of the, the people who made neon came back from World War II and as part of the GI Bill, they, they learned trades and there were neon schools. So there was a neon school in New York, there was one in Philadelphia. So initially I think a lot of it was the craftsmanship, the handmade aspect of it, the sort of folk art aspect of it was really very, very interesting to me.
0: Len's been collecting signs for over 40 years. He had some temporary exhibits here and there around the city under the name Neon Museum of Philadelphia. But it never had a permanent home. Not until April of 2021, when a space opened up in the next fab North Philadelphia building at 1800 North American Street.
1: And it became available during COVID period. We spent really a couple years designing it and getting the signs in place. And now that COVID is a little bit less of an issue... Uh, we've been able to open up. We've been open for a little bit more than a year. When people come in here, they come in for all different reasons. The most obvious is just to come in and look at the signs and look at, you know, sort of interesting artwork. But what becomes equally important, if not more important, is the history. Um, this is called the lamp glider. Hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Howard Johnson's restaurants. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So
0: Len walked me around the museum, which is just one room. Four walls that don't quite reach the high warehouse ceiling, where pipes and beams are exposed. But those walls are covered top to bottom with neon signs. They're motion-censored, so with just a few people in the room, they kept turning on and off. got it But when the museum is open and full of people, the whole place glows. Most of the signs are from places that were once well-known in Philadelphia, but a lot of them don't exist anymore.
1: This was a building that was on 6th Street called Levis's, old original Levis's. There's a photo of it on the wall. Len showed me a big sign in the shape of a hot dog. Just a hot dog,
0: no bun, with the word Levis down the middle.
1: It was this kind of soda fountain where they would hand mix the sodas. Uh, They just had hot dogs and fish cakes and ice cream. Uh, I first saw the Levis's hot dog when I was probably 10 years old. My dad used to take me to Philadelphia Warriors basketball games, and then afterwards he would go to Levis's. And driving from blocks away, you would see this little hot dog in the distance, and then it would get bigger and bigger and bigger as, you, as you'd move up to it.
0: In between all these signs, there are bulletin boards with a bunch of note cards pinned up.
1: People come in here who know of the signs. And they fill out a three-by-five card and they write a story about their experience with levises or with what, whatever sign that, that they're familiar with.
0: With those cards, you can add your own story to the museum. It's not just preserving the signs or even the history as Len knows it. It's preserving everyone's memories. There's a card here from Debbie G. My mom broke her arm skating at Chevu. She was a grandmother at the time. My mom and dad's first date was when he drove her and three friends to the Chevu, but he waited in the car for them. <laughs> A lot of stories about first dates at Chevu. Memories like these are what draw visitors and even volunteers to the Neon Museum. Mary Rastatter, who helps out at the ticket booth, explained to me what this Chevu place was. Tell me which sign we we're looking at Chevu Room, which yes. was in my day or my experience was a roller skating rink that you know all the kids from the community you know went to you know maybe once a month and got a skating night in and you know you were with all your friends and it was a whole lot of fun it was different than playing the games outside anyway yeah. and so that one always had a lot of memories for me although you know i appreciate the little more elaborate signs you know thing, yeah, yeah it's just so it's just text it's not it's you know, text, know text. the visual yeah. ones but it still brings back A lot of memories, Memories. Mm certainly. Yeah, I could see how you could spend hours. It seems like a small room, but you could spend a lot
1: of time. Yeah, that's what people's initial reaction often is that, oh, this is a small space. And we say, yeah, but there's really a lot here. That's not just marketing talk. There really
0: is a ton to look at. The museum has guide cards with the history behind each of its 100 or so signs, plus a library of books on Philadelphia history and neon and about 100 videos that they have playing on rotation when they're open. And
1: if you want an interactive experience. We have a game here called Dead Box. And that's an old Philadelphia street game that used to be either chalked on the ground uh, or painted on the ground. Kids would flip bottle tops from one number to the next. So we made a dead box mat. And we play dead box here when people come in. Do you have bottle tops? We do, yeah. Can, can we do. play some? Oh, sure. Let's play.
0: Of course, I had to try this game. but. I didn't do so well.
1: So you get a practice shot now. Okay. So there's a-
0: Mason Carter, who's the museum's outreach coordinator, was playing with us, and he's really good at this. He was just crushing the rest of us.
1: Mason, you're suck shot. Whoa, good shot. All right. But he
0: was also describing how much kids, who probably don't know any of the places these neon signs came from, might not totally get the history, but they love playing dead box.
1: So we'll do private tours here. So we had a group of students here the other day, and they all really got into dead box. Into playing dead box, yeah. and it And it just, it was cool to see that, like they were. Sure. Well, you know, it gets pretty, it can get really fun and raucous when, yeah. you, uh, when the stakes are high.
0: That's one of Len's goals, to teach a new generation what cities used to be like, when you could go outside and play dead box in the street, and these
1: signs would be all around you. It's hard with younger people simply because they don't know these signs. So many young people have never heard of of these places. I'm thinking of Howard Johnson's. You know, they were all over the East Coast. But the last Howard Johnson's just recently closed. So that's the end of a, a chapter of history.
0: Howard Johnson's is a hotel chain now. But what Len is referring to are the restaurants, once the largest restaurant chain in America. The last one just closed in June of
1: 2022.
0: Levis's hot dogs, the first sign we talked about, had a similarly sad ending.
1: Although we saved the hot dog, this gorgeous building, which had a fabulous cornice on it and beautiful brickwork, was just recently turned into a plain vanilla building. That kind of thing happens over and over again if you don't have historic protection.
0: Do you know what the building is? Is it apartments?
1: Well, it had become um, a vegan cheesesteak place. Now, from the look of it, maybe there's some, I don't really know, I haven't been by there lately, but it it looks just like a a residential building. Maybe there's something on the first floor now. Mm. But, you know, that story about the loss of mom and pop local flavor businesses is a story that keeps getting repeated over and over again. And it's one reason that we have this museum here to preserve those stories and to preserve the signs. So what
0: happened to the neon Philadelphia that Len and so many others remember? Why did these stores and that neighborhood culture fade away? Why did the signs go dark? In a minute, we'll talk about the decline of neon and the world that came with it, and whether or not it could make a comeback. That's coming up after this. Welcome back. I'm Sabrina boyd Circa. So I was walking around the Neon Museum, hearing stories from Len and Mary and Mason, reading the cards on the wall, playing dead box. I realized these signs didn't just represent buildings or businesses. They represented spaces, places you could go and you'd see your friends there. They weren't built to be community spaces like a park or a rec center is, but they became them because everyone in the neighborhood knew these places and spent time there, whether it was a roller skating rink or even a pharmacy. Len told me about when pharmacies used to have counters,
1: where they'd sell sodas, and so people would just hang out there. And so I was talking to to Walt, my, my pharmacist, about how Corson's had a counter and wasn't that interesting and unusual. He went over to a corner of his pharmacy, and he pulled off some boxes, and he said, counter? We all had counters. He shows me this marble counter that he had, and then he takes me down the basement, and he shows me where the pipes went up to the counter, and he said, You know, not only did we have a counter, but there was a pharmacy two blocks away. There was Henneberry's over there. And if you went three blocks that way, there was another pharmacy. So our places were basically hangouts for the neighborhood where people knew each other. We don't really have
0: many places like that anymore. Sure, some people are regulars at a bar or maybe a coffee shop. But your pharmacy? How often do you walk down to the pharmacy or the corner store without a plan? Maybe not even to buy anything, just to see who's around. Len says a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't do a lot of local shopping anymore.
1: What the Neon Museum does is it conveys a sense of Philadelphia from pre-internet times. You know, before you had big box stores, before you had uh, Amazon delivering your packages, one of the biggest differences is that we just don't have neighborhood shopping streets the way that we used to. Sometimes I think breweries are the new corner stores, Hmm. you know, because you can go to there's so many new breweries that have opened up and you do have more interaction. I hope people get to know each other at the breweries. But, you know, it's sort of a sad commentary that the only way that you get to see and know other people is at bars and restaurants rather than through other kinds of social interaction.
0: There's been a cultural shift for sure. Fewer mom and pop neighborhood stores means fewer neon signs but there's also been a technological shift that pushed people away from neon. It's very hard
1: to compete with LEDs. Um, Not so much because they're more efficient, because they're not, or they're better looking, but they're much, much cheaper. A woman came in and showed me a picture of my logo. We have a cityscape logo for the neon museum. And she said, could you do this logo for $400 or whatever the number was? And I said, where did you get that number? Because the number she gave me was less than it would cost me just in materials to to make the sign. So she showed me a website. And it was a Chinese website where they made LEDs. And they had my logo there. So they could produce these plastic tubes at a fraction of the cost that it would take to get a tube bender to actually bend the tubes, wire them up, mount them, put a transformer on them, all that. So that, that's part of the problem. On top of being expensive, it's
0: hard to make neon signs. We're talking about handmade craftsmanship here. Len makes signs himself, and he also restores the signs he gets for the museum. He's working on restoring the Pat Stakes sign now, the one he said originally had 39 neon tubes in it. It's a giant crown for the King of Stakes. And it has all
1: these intricate neon jewels that each have their own colors. The way this kind of sign was made, uh, at the end of the neon tube are two housings that connect up to transformers. So you've got two housing holes here. So this was a ruby. So I made up the pattern for this. And I have my bender just bend this tube. I haven't picked it up yet. But I'll put this back on. I'll attach it with tube supports, which are Uh, these little glass extensions that hold the neon in place. Mm -hmm. And then we'll wire it up to a transformer and and light it. So you have to do that, you know, for 37 more tubes here, which is a a big undertaking, which isn't going to happen tomorrow. It's going to take a little while for that to, to take place.
0: I wanted to understand a little more about how neon works. I'll be honest, I don't remember a whole lot from high school science class. So I asked Len. I know that neon is gas, but that's about where my knowledge of like how neon works ends. Like why does it glow? How does, you know? How yeah, do-
1: I can tell you a little bit about that. So uh, if you remember back to chemistry class, there were five gases that were called noble or rare gases. I think they were neon, argon, krypton, xenon, and helium was the fifth. And the principle behind neon is that any of those gases, if you electrify them, if you run an electrical charge through them, will glow. But the ones that glow the brightest are neon and argon. Neon by itself will glow red. Argon by itself will glow blue. And then you're getting the other colors, as Mary was showing you, either from stained glass, so you can still sort of see the gas running through it if, if you look. But you also have phosphorescent coatings inside of the tubes so you no longer really see the gas running through it anymore. It's really those three things that give you the color. The gas, the glass, whether it's colored glass or clear glass, and phosphorescent coatings inside. Fun fact, that classic buzz
0: of a neon light, it's not really a thing, at least
1: not anymore. If you get close to these, are they buzzing? Probably not. Not They're, really. Yeah. and. One of the reasons for that is that the neon transformers have changed over the years. Mm. So we used to use uh, corn coil transformers, which were basically copper coils. Once those transformers start wearing down, they might be straining. You might hear some buzzing. Now we have electronic transformers, which are much, much quieter. And you don't really get that issue. If an electronic transformer starts to fail, it doesn't buzz. It just stops. Mm. It just goes off.
0: So you can see the kind of deep knowledge that Len has of how to make and work with neon. Not that many people learn this anymore. If neon signs aren't in high demand because there aren't that many mom and pop shops asking for them and because LED is cheaper, then why would you learn all this? Is there a profitable business
1: in neon these days? There still are neon signs being made, but I think the trend has been away from big commercial signs and more towards artistic uses of neon. Neon is kind of like vinyl, right? It's
0: rare. It's almost an obsolete technology, but that can make it more valuable. It has this authentic, nostalgic feel to it, and it takes a true artist to make it. You can see that in the art that Len has on display and for sale at the museum. Some of it he made, some by other artists, but they definitely stand out as different. Tell me, okay, so I see these, like, looks like art pieces um, with the heart here yeah. and, the, and all the dolls. What are these about? Well, those are gnomes. They, I made those. These didn't look like any gnomes I'd ever seen before. Len is a found object artist in addition to a neon artist, and he learned about this type of gnome making while he was traveling in the Midwest. It's a tradition that started in Europe. These two gnomes were made out of various items placed on and around tree trunks. Plastic toys, beads. So this one we called Queen of the Gnomes, so it's all female-oriented. One had the tree trunk set on top of old stove burners, and it even had a tiny garden gnome on the top. And this one's called Gnome on the Range. When you say gnome, are you talking about like garden gnomes, like this yeah, little guy? Yeah. And these are just your interpretation of
1: that? Yeah, it's it's a version of a gnome. In fact, this is like a garden gnome over here. Yeah, that's part of it. But no more in the range is a double entendre because we're talking about a cooking range. Some of these things are cooking and some of them relate to the Wild West.
0: And of course, both pieces incorporate neon tubes. I liked that Len had this art out in the middle of all these historical signs. It was almost like he was claiming his place in neon history. Just like these signs were the style of the 1950s, art is the style that neon takes today. Maybe in 20 or 30 years, Len's pieces will have their own guide cards and bulletin boards with memories. That is, if the museum is still around then. Len wants to keep on the history, like he was saying about people putting up their um, notes, you know, the oral history that, you know, is important for your podcast, right? Like people (laughs) telling, you know, um, what went on back then. Len has achieved his goal of getting a permanent space for this museum, where it can preserve the memory of 1950s neon Philadelphia. But Len is 75 years old now. He can't keep this place up forever.
1: I'd like the museum to outlive me and and to continue on, but I'm really too old to be running the museum. He has a small team helping him,
0: three or so employees like Mason and a handful of volunteers like Mary but no one who
1: really knows how to run a museum. The next step for the museum is really becoming a museum that's got an active board of directors, that can get funding, that can get grants, that can do fundraising, that can have someone who can replace me as the person who's running the museum. We have some very good staff now who are working here, but we need more staff and we need more funding in order to pay those staff. So we really need a professional executive director to come in because that's really not my forte. If
0: that doesn't happen, Len is worried about where these iconic Philadelphia signs could
1: end up. It would be sad if these things ended up in San Francisco or in St. Louis or wherever, but the neon signs have become commodities and they're very valuable. What often happens is that signs are are put on eBay and they end up going to other places. So my dream is just keeping the Philadelphia signs here. you know, People call me up very often and they say, we've got a sign, would you, would you like it? And if it's from another place, I always say to them, can you keep it in its home? Because it's iconic, it's a landmark for that location. It's got history attached to that location. So that's really the primary thing, is having the signs function as historic markers.
0: Knowing that younger people weren't around to see these signs in their glory, can their legacy really live on? Who will want to take over this museum? Will the next generation take the time to learn the history, appreciate it, and honor it the way that Len does? We can't know that right now, but Len is hopeful. That's why he created the museum in the first place. Do you think this helps to, like preserve those memories and that vision of that time, even for people who haven't seen it? Oh, know? I would
1: hope so. I would hope that they would learn a bit about what cities were like, not just Philadelphia, but what cities were like in general. I'm really looking at this museum as a piece of Philadelphia history. You know, Philadelphia is very invested in its colonial history, Civil War history, and so on. Revolutionary War history, I should say. But this is the history of Philadelphia in in the 1950s, in in mid-century.
0: If you want to support the Neon Museum or go check it out, we'll put a link to their website in our show notes, along with links to our website and Twitter page, where you can see pictures of all the signs and the art pieces we've talked about. I'm Sabrina boyd Circa. The JohnCast team is me, Brian Seltzer, Tom Rickard, Sarah Smith, and Holly Stevens. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with another story that could only be found here in Philadelphia.